If you brought a Bible with you, let me uh, ask you to open it up to John uh, chapter 2 as we continue our series in the book of John. And I don't know if this has been helpful for you. It's been so helpful for me to be in a book, um, in the book of John. The gospel of John has been refreshing as we've looked at it um, up close. We've named this phrase of the book of John, and we're going to change this kind of subtitle through our uh, through our title slide a few times, but Jesus up close. And that's what we've seen. In chapter 1, we saw uh, John the Baptist introduce, right, Jesus to us, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We heard the author John, also referred to as John the Evangelist, or John the Beloved. He also introduced John to, uh, Jesus to us, saying, um, that we have seen his glory. And so that's what we're going to continue doing even today, is looking at Jesus up close. And we're building a biography of Jesus. I was on vacation this week um, with a few baseball fans. And I was a baseball fan, uh, a Braves fan back in the day, you know, the Smoltz and Glavin era of uh, the Braves team. Uh, they were always on TV. I was a fan of them then. I haven't followed them since, but these two gentlemen I was on a vacation with, still big Braves fans. And so the whole week, that's all we talked about was statistics of baseball. Um, they are in, uh, I guess they play tonight, um, hoping to make it to the World Series. And that's all we discussed, all the things. Um, when I was growing up, I was a fan of Nolan Ryan. Now imagine just for a minute... That Nolan Ryan has come over and uh, he's throwing a little BP with you, a little batting practice with you. And in his prime, right, he's just tossing it up so that you can hit the ball. And then in his prime, just for a moment, right, he takes off uh, the governor. He takes off the restriction of his arm and he just swings one past you. And you would, if you've ever seen someone on a professional level, no matter what kind of sport we're talking about, everyone kind of stands back. Like to see that talent up close, to see a 99 mile an hour fastball, right, would just almost take your breath away. And in a sense, that's what we're seeing Jesus do here. And there's a few times throughout uh, the Gospels that we see Jesus kind of pull the curtains back on his supernatural deity, He's a man, right? Yes, born of Mary. Yes, supernaturally. Yes, fully God and fully man. And there's a few times we see him kind of open the curtain just a little bit, and we get to see supernatural works that occurs. And this is what happened last week, as Jason talked about at the beginning of chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. As they're at this wedding feast, and they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother comes and says, hey, we've run out of wine. Take care of it. And he does. And commentaries, the ones I was reading, said that he basically made the equivalent to 908 bottles of wine out of these two big things of water. Can you even imagine? So he pulls the curtain back, Jesus does, and we see his weightiness and his power and his authority. And the result of that, as we saw last week in verse 11 of chapter 2, you may recall at the end of that, as he manifested his glory, it said, and his disciples believed in him, verse 11. So the miracle of turning of water into wine wasn't just for the fun of it, right? It was called a sign, and the effect of the sign was to reveal the glory of Jesus. And the effect of that revelation of God's glory through Jesus 
brought about belief in the disciples. That was the point. Now I want to continue in the reading of Scripture to the end of um, the passage today of Jesus cleansing the temple. Look at verse 18 with me. So after he had cleansed the temple, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for you doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, it's taken us 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead and his disciples remembered that he had said this, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the result of even this occasion in verse 24 The disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken. So we see very clearly, John is not hiding any cards. It is all on the table. He's on task. Chapter 20, verse 31, we've mentioned several times. John tells us the purpose in writing this gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's making explicit in verse 11 and verse 22 that this is, in fact, the effect of the events that are having on those that are following Jesus. So we use some phrases around here quite a bit at the church. And one of those is invitation and challenge. And this is what ultimately builds a discipleship culture. Not a fans of Jesus alone, but real followers of Jesus are built on these two invitations. Invitation, invitation to know God, to walk with God through the person of Jesus, a real friendship with Jesus. And when you do that, as you read God's word, as you walk with God in the word, there's challenge. There's a lot of things you read that are a bit disturbing to the self, the one that likes to live for the self. And so we read these things. And we hold these tensions in balance. And this is what the author John said in chapter 1, that Jesus came full of grace and of truth. So I'm going to look at both of those in this passage today, invitation and challenge. We'll get to the challenge first, but first let me, even before we do that, let's look at a little context. As John the evangelist is pointing the light on Jesus so that we may know him, our hearts may be reminded once again that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no significant, meaningful life apart from Jesus. And that's why we do this. And that's why we are called to be evangelists ourselves. Because we know and we've been convinced, yet our heart needs to be reminded. There is no significant, meaningful life apart from from walking with Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's called a few disciples, made quite an appearance at the wedding we talked about last week, and then the first temple event. Now the temple is a bit foreign to us, and that's why I want to kind of give us a little understanding. What is the temple? We can't think of it like the church you grew up in, or the sanctuary, or the gymnasium, that's what we're in, right? It wasn't anything, it wasn't anything like that. Israel believed that God decided that in this one little place, in the temple, in Jerusalem, people could get a glimpse of what it would be like for heaven to invade earth so that they could keep hope alive. And all the sacrificial system happened around the temple. 
Events like the sacrifices and dedicating uh, of kids and naming infants and worship took place in and around the temple because the temple is the place where heaven invades earth. And when heaven invades earth, things begin to happen. Hope rises up when heaven invades earth. Sins are forgiven. Nobodies become somebodies. Outcasts develop a relationship with God. Our lives are drenched with purpose when heaven invades earth. Now, ultimately, of course, they were waiting for the day when God's Occupy Earth plan began to expand beyond the temple. But for right now, the temple is the center of everything. The main part of the Jewish life. Males, Jewish males were required if they live within 15 miles to make the journey back to the temple at least one time a year. That normally happened during Passover. When this town... Of, of maybe 50,000, some say maybe 100,000 people would swell to almost two and a half million people would walk through the temple. Can you imagine if there was just a number of days and two and a half million people would have to come into a, a place like this? There are just people everywhere. And I don't want to get in the weeds here, but let me describe just quickly because I want you to have a mental picture I know some of us are visual learners, those visual aids help me, of what the temple actually looked like. In the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And this is where God's presence was. And it was separated from the holy place, the outside of that kind of rectangular room by a thick four-inch veil. That the great high priest would only be able to enter once a year to give atonement, a sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. And the whole sacrificial system was built on this understanding in order to get close to God. We're separated from God because of our sin. In order to get close, something had to die. And that was the sacrifice. So outside of the Holy of Holies and the holy place was the temple court. There was an inner and outer court. And out on that outer court was the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as non-Jews could go. And there were many God-fearing Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and they could, never, they could never go close to the temple. At best, anybody get hand-me-downs growing up? I mean, you know, hand-me-downs, you know, just like whatever you had, you got a rich cousin somewhere, we had one of those, it was awesome. It was the first Tommy Hilfiger shirt I ever got, right? A hand-me-down. Had a little mustard stain on it. No big deal, right? It's Tommy Hilfiger. We're going to wear this thing, right? These hand-me-downs. The best the Gentiles could get would be this hand-me-down kind of blessing. They could never get close enough to the Holy of Holies. They were always on the outer courts. And on these outer courts is where all the livestock and the money changers would have been. And this is the picture where we see Jesus in this setting. Verse 13 and 14 set the stage for the action of Jesus. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers there. So inside the temple court, a placement for prayer and communion with God and other acts of worship, there were these pens of oxen and sheep and pigeons and sellers sitting around them waiting to make a transaction, and others who were prepared to exchange the money that they had brought into the correct currency. 
And the outward reason for this setup was probably that the law required the sacrifice of the oxen or sheep or pigeons and all the worshipers would have come a long way and some wouldn't have brought their own animals. They could purchase them there. It was convenient. It was almost the loving thing to do or so it appeared. So the question is, what made Jesus so angry? There are moments when the passion of Jesus just kind of breaks in like an avalanche. Why was he so furious? Enough to empty the building with a whip that he made. Religious falsehood is is the answer. Religious posing. Making it hard for people to get to his father. These people, the money changers, the sellers of livestock under the guise of helpfulness and service had turned a place of worship and connection with God into a marketplace. Look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords. If you got the old King James, it says making a whip from reeds. Some people think this is, you know, Jesus going Indiana Jones style, but this is not really a whip of leather. It was not meant to hurt anyone. The a reed was something that you made baskets with. It was equivalent maybe to a, uh, a really light kind of rope. So it had more danger in its appearance than it had any kind of real effect of causing harm on anything. He made the whip of cords in verse 15 and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, if you've been around church, you may have heard this passage preached in in the book of Matthew and Mark and even Luke. And all of those, they contain an account of Jesus cleansing the temple. And in that, right, we don't even know if John is even reporting the same event. And Matthew, after he does this, he says in verse 21, Matthew 21, 13, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. But John doesn't report either of those two things as the real problem here. He doesn't say it's a house of prayer, although it certainly is. And he doesn't say that these people are robbers, although he would later, later confirm that. Most commentators do, do, do think that these are two separate events. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put that the driving, a cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry. John has placed it at the beginning. And it could be that John moved it just out of chronological order. We don't necessarily know. But Jesus' response in these two scenarios are not the same. And the outcome in Jerusalem is not the same. That's why I think there's two different events. So here's what does matter in our text today is what Jesus does say. What does he say? Look at verse 16. What makes Jesus so angry? What is the religious falsehood that I'm speaking of? Verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Maybe your translation says, do not make my father's house a marketplace. Jesus doesn't say the money changers are robbers or the animals are defective or that the place is a place of prayer. He says that they've turned his father's house into a market. The disciples saw this incredible display of fury with the homemade whip loosing the oxen. Can you imagine a stampede of oxen 
Those things are big. And the sheep and the, and the pigeon cages. Everything's kind of going up and all the bleeding that's going to be happening in that room. And they're reminded of the zeal of Jesus for his father's house. Psalm 69.9 where David had said, Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, what Jesus is saying to these people is what in God's name are you doing? The contrast that he pointed out between my father's house and a marketplace. My father's house, the house is about knowing and loving and treasuring the person my father, Jesus says. In this temple, my father should have supreme place. He's the su- supreme treasure. He's the thing you sell, you sell everything you have to purchase the field because in the field is the treasure. And that's what Jesus is saying about the temple when you come in. God, the father, should have supreme place, supreme value. We should walk in wanting to connect with the father. As the psalmist says in Psalm 84, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Or in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, the psalmist asks. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. But that focus has been replaced with a focus on trade, the exchanging of money, the buying of livestock. And there's no reference here to the people who needed the animals or the pilgrims who needed the sheep and pigeons, the anger is all directed at those who are selling and handling the money. Jesus could see through the veneer of their religious helpfulness to the heart. In fact, in verse 25, John says, he himself knew what was in a man. Just that verse this week to me has just, just been right there in my heart. He himself knew what was in a man. You know, friends, we might get good at playing religious games. We may know what it's like to come here and to sing the songs and say the things and the prayers and call each other brother and sister or whatever we do. But ultimately, God knows what's in a man's heart, what's in a woman's. He knows what's in your heart. And all the acting and posing doesn't fool him one bit. What did Jesus see? He saw this market was not advancing communion with the Heavenly Father. It was not flowing from the love of God. It was flowing from a love of money. And what made it worse is that it was a religious ritual tied to it that was being used as a cover-up for the greed and love of money. See, what would happen is these pilgrims would come from some 15 miles away and they would travel the whole way and some of them would bring their animals with them. Little Johnny raised this little sheep. This is Johnny's little sheep, and they raised it, and they bring it all the way to the temple several miles, and all the things they walk through and got dirty, and you can see them out there trying to clean the sheep up right outside the temple before they bring the sheep in, and there was a group of inspectors there that would have to make sure the sacrifice couldn't be, you know, couldn't be some three-legged dog, right? It had to be, had to be pristine, had to be without spot or blemish, and so they'd present to the inspectors, and then the inspectors would be like, no, 
this little lamb is not going to do it. Well, what are we supposed to do with the lamb? We drive up 15 miles to present this. Well, yeah, I tell you what, we'll buy it back from you for pennies on the dollar. A lamb was probably worth $10. We'll give you a dollar for it. And then the inspectors would take it out of back around and then just insert it right back into the ones that they were selling. And then the family would be, well, what, well, what are we supposed to do? We came all this way. Well, you know what? We, we've, got, we've actually got a pristine group of oxen and lamb and pigeons that you could buy from us. Well, how much? Do they, well, those are $100. And this poor family that basically everyone lived in such ways of poverty would spend everything they had to purchase this lamb for sacrifice ultimately. And they were all in on it, even the money changers. You couldn't just pay the temple tax with just a regular coin. It had the emperor's face on it. No, think Chuck E. Cheese, right? They have their own currency. You know that? Anybody ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? Yeah. You're going to go spend $10,000 for your kid to have a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese and play all the video games and win all the tickets that get you the little sticky slap hand that goes against the wall and sticks up there for a couple years, that kind of thing. They're going to trade in their money for the temple money. And of course, there's this great inflation rate even on that. You know that feeling you get when you're at a sleazy used car dealership and you don't know who's telling you the truth and who's lying and what they just kind of just cleaned up. This car, you know, it's got high miles but only had one owner. One owner, high miles. You should get this car. right? What about that smoke coming from the, oh, that's nothing. We just changed the oil this morning. It's probably just burning off of there. That feeling at the sleazy use, you just want to get out of there. Let's just do the deal. Let me get out of here. That's the feeling that these people had. Crowded, smashed in through the temple, had to make the sacrifice, had to change the money, had to buy the livestock. And this is what makes Jesus so angry. Not even the ripping of the people off. Jesus is going to handle that the next time he does this. It's the religious facade that the focus became the ritual of all the doing and not the reason behind all the doing. The reason behind it all was to commune with God and to point to Jesus. That Jesus would one day be the ultimate sacrifice, which is why we don't have sheep pens here anymore for you to purchase this morning. The focus had become on the Tradition, on the ritual, on all the religious activity and not the reason for it. Again, Jesus sees the heart, not just the action. Several months ago, we talked about this in Matthew 16. Jesus would warn us, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you are to know Jesus and love him and experience him, you must pay very careful attention, friends, to this warning. And if you don't heed this simply by making, we don't heed this by just looking at the Pharisees and making them the the bad boys of the Bible. These people were so religiously devout, memorizing the Old Testament. What have we memorized? Like John 3.16, kind of, right? If you help me out a little bit, they memorized the whole Old Testament. They were so devout, We make them the villains in some Marvel movie. But that's not what Jesus meant. It's so easy for us to be deceived by this stuff if we 
think about it as back then in the Bible times. But this religious fog uses sanctified words and sanctified activities and things that look and sound very much like Sunday school to distort our perceptions of God and our experience of walking with him. It's as cunning as a snake and infectious as COVID-19, infiltrating our practices to make them look one way but actually be something else. Church, don't miss this. Loving the culture of church is not anywhere close to the same thing as loving Jesus. Loving the culture of church is not anywhere close to the same thing as loving Jesus. Loving the nostalgia of singing the songs and having an honest preacher who will preach your funeral one day or do your wedding or baptize your kids, those can be good things. But the culture of the church is not is not the same thing as loving Jesus. The Pharisees loved their religious culture. The long prayers, the solemn garments, the honor bestowed upon them for being members of the clergy, they loved it, but they hated Jesus. They missed Jesus. Again, this is not back then in Bible times. This has a present day warning for us. Here's the challenge part. Don't play the religious games And miss Jesus. John Eldridge in his book Beautiful Outlaw talks about this religious talk. He says, religious talk is a favorite ploy of the enemy to turn people actually away from Jesus. A wingnut talking about Jesus does far more damage than 50 atheists could do. How cunning. Have people claim something intimate or powerful with Jesus, but let their lives be so unappealing, unappealing that it ends up having the same effect as bad breath. Everyone steps back three paces. You've experienced this, have you? Gifted preachers who are mean to their children, anointed prophets who can't sustain ordinary friendships, servants of the Lord who need to be the center of attention to tell you how much their ministry is doing in the world to dazzle you with the amazing stories they have. Eldred would go on in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, to name four different categories or characteristics of the religious spirit. And I want to blow through these pretty quickly. When the religious is, is operating, when the religious is operating, false reverence replaces loving Jesus. False reverence replaces loving Jesus. Maybe you grew up in one of these good churches that had the sign on outside the door You know, no food or drinks inside the sanctuary. I remember we were a youth pastor, young youth pastor couple, Ashley and I were, and we were reaching kids that were so far from God, they did not know the religious game. And we've been praying for this one boy, Cole, to actually come to church. We've been praying, he was a friend of someone else in in our youth ministry, praying for Cole, praying for Cole to come. Cole shows up one Sunday morning, and I am thrilled that he's there. We've been praying for this boy, his family was, was, was a mess. He shows up and I'm praying. You know that kind of prayer when you friends actually come to church and you're like, Lord, change their heart, rescue them, show them Jesus. You're praying those kind of desperate prayers. Some of you come up to me before service sometimes and tell me this. Hey, that buddy we've been praying for, he's in the service. No pressure, pastor. No, no pressure. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay, thanks for that. 
as if their salvation hangs upon my good preaching, then they're destined for hell. That's not a good thing. Cole shows up. He comes in the sanctuary. Service about to start. And one of the old deacons shows up. And literally cusses him out near the front row of the service. I'm 10 or 15 paces off enough to hear him. And before I could get them, he had worn a ball cap into the service. I was so angry. I wanted to turn some tables over. This is a religious spirit when false reverence replaces actually loving Jesus. Maybe this is a good diagnostic question for our faith family. Is loving Jesus the thing that is given the most preaching time at our church? Is it the most of our casual conversation around here? Are most of the people here in love with Jesus? It's pretty straightforward. Are you playing religious games or do you have a heart for Jesus? When the religious is operating, false reverence replaces loving Jesus. Knowing about God substitutes for knowing God. And because knowing God is mostly cognitive, church feels more like a seminar than a familial meeting. Good content is what matters. Pastor, I want to learn something new. Doctrine is fiercely defended and members can explain to you the different theories on the propitiation of the blood of Christ. Yet when asked about walking with Jesus, hey, what's, what's God leading you to do? What's he talking to you about? They just look at you dumbfounded. As if the Holy Spirit inside of them does not communicate anymore. When knowing about God substitutes for knowing God. I believe this is why so many of my friends that went through seminary with me are no longer in the ministry, no longer walking with God because they made the goal knowing about Jesus rather than walking with Jesus. It's dangerous. When Christian service substitutes for friendship with Jesus, particularly popular in our age of social justice, where fighting for a cause becomes the expression of my devotion for Jesus. And if you don't fight the same cause that I'm fighting, then you must not love Jesus the way I love Jesus. But we ultimately become exhausted Christians working for noble causes, but not reporting a daily encounter with Jesus himself. Over time, the work itself substitutes for Jesus and seeking him seems harder than just doing more stuff in his name. Covenant. Especially so many of you who are here today on fall break weekend. I know we got a lot of people out. There's a real warning here. It is possible to be so busy serving God that you turn your life into a market and you miss the most important thing, walking with him, fellowship with him. He didn't die just for you to be religious. He died so that you could come close. As he died, even the veil that separated the holy of holy, the presence of God, and the holy place, the closest you could possibly become, ripped in half, inviting anyone who would to come to God through the person and work of Jesus. So you could boldly enter the throne room 
Friends, are you walking with him? Are you walking with Jesus? Not playing the religion. What would Jesus do if he came in our gathering this morning? Would he stand over there, unrecognized, making a whip of cords before he drove us out of here? Because we're playing way more religious game than we have come to communicate with God, to worship Jesus, to encourage each other. The fourth thing that he mentions is the trivial morality prevails over everything. Jesus once called the Pharisees the whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, full of death and decay on the inside. As if a freshly painted door would hide the smell of rot on the inside. Lord have mercy. So you see that this is the warning. This is a real challenge. And the challenge is this, don't get caught up in the religious ritual and miss the reason all the ritual is here to seek a real friendship with God through Jesus. That's the challenge. Here's the invitation. One thing really caught my attention when studying this week is John is the only author to put these two events together. The wedding at Cana, 908 bottles of wine and clearing out the temple. And I think it's on purpose to show us who Jesus really is and to invite him in. Some people want magic trick Jesus. I mean, it's pretty cool to see Jesus change the water into wine, right? We want magic trick Jesus. We want to invite him into our lives or better yet to give our lives over to him thinking he's just going to add a little magic to our current trajectory in our life like sprinkling a little fairy dust on our own plans to make them that much better. When Jesus comes into your life, he brings abundance and celebration but sometimes he turns over the tables. And this is why I think these two events John put together to show with both sides. Sometimes we invite him in and he brings the celebration. He brings the abundant life. Yes, he does. But sometimes he turns over the table. He calls for confession and repentance. Sometimes walking with him brings all the feels. And sometimes those feels are reproof and correction. Conviction that leads to repentance and change. John began with the conversion, changing water into wine, and then he showed Jesus performing the work of cleansing, cleansing out the temple. And this is always how Jesus works. You don't have to clean your life up before you come to him. No, you come to him. And the conversion happens. And then from that point all the way to heaven is the process of cleansing. What does Paul say? From one degree of glory to the next. That's what he wants to do. Just looking a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit more like Jesus. At the wedding, Jesus is the guest in the house and everyone wants wedding Jesus. Can you just imagine the wine that he made? Nobody wants cleansing Jesus. In the temple, he's the host. When asked, who gave you authority to do this in the temple? He said, I am the temple. I need no authority from you.
And that's what he does in us. He brings cleansing. Church, here's how you know you've moved from being a fan of Jesus, we talked about a couple weeks ago, to a follower of Jesus, is that Jesus now has the right in your life to do just that. Not only the right, but he's doing it in your life on a regular basis. He's bringing conviction. You're having to apologize to other people that you've wronged. Maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. You had to say, hey, babe, I'm, I'm sorry. You have to apologize to your kids, to your coworkers. Hey, you know when I said that, I wasn't very Christ-like. I just want to apologize. You're having to ask for forgiveness for him from him. We're prone to worship other things. Our life is going to end up in the ditch at some point. We turn to other things for satisfaction and meaning and significance, but God has made us and wired us to find those things, satisfaction and significance in Him and in Him alone. I read this by Tim Keller. It just grabbed my heart. In his commentary on this very passage, I love this. Jesus overturns your tables and fills your table for the same reason because he loves you because he loves you I told you we were on vacation last week every morning there's 10 kids in this one house Lord we needed help every morning they wanted cookies and ice cream for breakfast as a parent you gotta step in you know what if you eat that now you're gonna be puking by 10 that's not a good decision There are things that we tell our kids that, you know, not safe to play on the highway. Not safe to stick bobby pins in electric sockets. It's not safe to swallow bleach or to snort salt or all kind of other weird things I did as a kid. Those aren't safe. So we, we have to provide some reproof and correction. And this is what the loving God of the universe How lucky are we? How blessed are we beyond measure that God loves us so much that he would care to protect us from some of the evil that's out there. I love this, that God doesn't bring his conviction and his wrath, but in his love, it's the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Let me return to the temple just right here at the end. The temple, as I said before, was where heaven touches earth. It was a place in Jerusalem. You had to go there to get near to God. And then Jesus clarified, even in this passage, that he was the temple. God in the flesh. Not heaven touching earth, heaven on earth. Later, he would ascend to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit into the life of every believer. And now heaven is overlapping earth. Everybody in this political season is talk about government overreach. Oh, government overreach. And I don't agree with some of the things they're doing, but the Gospels were written when Nero was the emperor. Talk about overreach. I'm going to take every Christian in the church and put them on poles and light them on fire. And yet Jesus didn't even make the point about talking about Herod or Nero. You know what he did? He said, you know what? The Gospels like a seed. And it's planted and it sprouts forth and it changes the landscape of a culture. 
I don't care how much overreach there is, they can't get rid of the church. The promise of God is the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So round them all up, round us all up and put us in jail or burn all the Bibles or whatever. You're not gonna get rid of the church. Paul would say, you yourselves are God's temple. In other words, Jesus woke something up and started something new so now that heaven can invade the earth through ordinary, broken human beings. God wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't require money or degree or status or looks or talents or connections or clout or put together life. As a matter of fact, he says, you know what? Bring me your weakness. And it's in your weakness that I'm going to be made strong. I'll be seen for the strength that I am. As a matter of fact, it's the degrees and status and looks and talent and connections that often get in the way of being used greatly by God. This is the invitation to come walk with Jesus. And when in Jesus' name, you volunteer somewhere to help a left out child learn how to read, God's smiling, heaven's invading earth. And would you give up your Sunday afternoon and evening to go serve our friends downtown? Heaven is invading earth through Jesus' name. When you confess holding a grudge against someone else, and instead of holding a grudge, you seek to forgive or ask for forgiveness, heaven invading earth. When people get an idea to be generous with their money and they actually follow through, heaven invading earth. When Jesus moves in your heart to cross ethnic barriers in love, heaven invading earth when you show compassion to an infant I love those people who are serving in our covenant kids back there loving on those babies heaven invading earth when you defend the right of a vulnerable person heaven invading earth when you treat the overlooked nobody with dignity heaven's invading earth when you hold on to hope in the face of death heaven's invading earth in this political season, I know it's highly charged. Friends, be Jesus people. Then once again, the temple is at the center of life, but the temple is you. Ordinary human beings become the vessels where heaven invades earth. And that's what God wants to do through you, friends. This is the invitation. A friend of mine used to go to church here. He's moved away. Got into this real religious kind of thing and God was calling him into something more. And every time I would talk to him, he would pray this prayer. We would pray it together. I loved it. Lord Jesus, I want all of you. Nothing more and nothing less. I want Jesus at the party and Jesus in the temple. I want all of you, Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Fill my life with you. What a beautiful prayer. Maybe that's a prayer we could pray. Jesus, I want all of you. Not just magic trick Jesus, not just the Jesus you want to show off to your friends, but the Jesus that sometimes says some hard things, that leads to repentance, that convicts of sin. I want to close today by doing this real simple exercise. I'm going to be in the back and can pray with you. We're going to sing in just a moment. In a moment, we're not doing communion today. But every one of you got... 
you have a connection card on your table and I want you to pick this up. This is only for you. As a matter of fact, we put like 10 on there. So we would love for you to put your name on one, especially if you're visiting. Tell us how you, we can pray for you. There'll be baskets in the back for this. But before we get to all that, I want you to take one of those cards and this is just for you. I want you to write down a few ways, a few things, ways that God has blessed your life. We grew up singing that hymn, Count Your Many Blessings, name them one by one. Anyone familiar with that? I just want you to do this as a simple exercise. Just build so much gratitude. Just write some things down. Again, this is just for you. Just write a few things down. I I want everyone to participate with this. Everybody grab a card, please. I'm going to give you plenty of time. Just write some things down. Got pens, got cards. Listen, I'm not one of those pastors that's going to embarrass you with anything. Just as an act of worship of thankfulness, just write a list of some things down that you're just thankful that God's done in your life. Ways that he's come through, the gifts of grace that he's given you. How he's filled your table, so to speak, as Jesus did at the wedding of Cana. I just want to just, just right where you're at, would you just thank God for those things? Would you just say a prayer just in your head or your heart or out loud, however you want to do it? Just thank God for the blessings that he's given to you, your family, maybe an education being raised in a free country, having people that love you, a good friend. Maybe he's restored your marriage. Maybe he's healed your kid. Maybe he's given you health, whatever. Just thank God for them right now. God, I just thank you the way you bless me. Then in a different column, maybe it's underneath the one you wrote. What are some things that he's trying to remove out of your life? This is the repentance part. What are maybe some wrong beliefs that you've adopted? Someone told you you weren't worth much one day and that's just overplaying in your head all the time. You You need to repent of that. Wrong thinking. Maybe it's people in your life. Maybe it's lust after things. Maybe it's the pride of life itself. Maybe there's just one or two. Don't fill the list. We could all fill a list. Just one or two things that immediately the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. This is what you need to get rid of. This is, what, this is the cleansing part of what I'm doing in your life. And this kindness again, leading us to repentance. As you write those things down, I just want you to say a prayer and give those things to God. God, I give you this issue, this struggle, this besetting sin. I just give it to you. This person in my life that I just hold this grudge against. Lord, I forgive them and give them to you. I just, I give it to you. Lord Jesus, we want all of you. Nothing more, nothing less. We want all of you. Help us to be Jesus' people that 
walk with you that emanate from our lives your loving kindness that you've shared towards us and as we sing in just a minute may we sing with such gratitude from our heart and claim out God we need you more now than ever thank you for being a God that loves us that fills our table with good things but also loves us enough to speak some hard things to us for our own good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing together.